And then he says, and may share in his sufferings. He realizes this is a way where our relationship, our intimacy with the Lord is, is deepened as we go through difficult. We know that happens with, with other people. When we go through a difficult time together, our relationship can grow stronger and deeper. We have more confidence and trust in each other. And Paul says, this is, this is what happens in the Christian life. I'm willing to face suffering. In fact, he says in, in Philippians 1, back in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, you know, it's been granted to us, not just to know the Lord, but to suffer with him. Wow, what a privilege. <laughs> Do you say that in your natural self? Yeah, what a privilege to be able to suffer. No. But when we see the benefit of being able to know and trust the Lord more, when we grow in faith, when we understand more fully his presence with us, we see the benefit of suffering as that intimacy grows. And of course, the Lord wishes this for us. Not just the suffering, but the intimacy. And we remember what it says in James chapter 1, where James writes, inspired by God, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, more endurance. And let this endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we understand that this is the goal for us as Christians. Not just to say, I have been saved, but to be walking with the Lord. Growing deeper in a, in a relationship with Him. And we see through what the scriptures say in these these few verses that I pulled out, that the plan is not for Christ, oh, to take away all your pain and suffering. But in relationship with him, that pain and suffering has meaning. I remember hearing Jordan Peterson talk about suffering, and he says, suffering is no longer suffering when it has meaning. And he puts something into words that we all know, right? If we're suffering, but we see some wonderful goal, I mean, that's what the Olympics is all about. These people torture their bodies. And if people didn't think gold medals were, were such a wonderful thing, they would go, you know, these people are stupid. This is, this is wrong. But they see this goal and they go, oh no, my suffering has significance. It has a meaning. It has a purpose. But how much more so for you and I? We think about an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is the purpose of the challenges, the difficulty, the suffering that we face. So this isn't what the prosperity type preachers are telling us. This isn't 
what our flesh necessarily wants, but there are difficulties, there are challenges, and they bring us closer to the Lord. So we might be saying, okay, how does this next story that we've already read, how does it fit into into what we're learning about discipleship and growing closer to the Lord? Well, this basically, I think, serves as a warning for us. And let's look at it. It says, I have written here for these first few verses, 11 to 13, God's power revealed through meaningful miracles. This is where we start. It says, as the events begin to unfold, that Paul, the guy who met the Lord, the guy who spent significant time with the Lord, the guy who's been serving the Lord faithfully, spreading his fame, his gospel, all over the known world at the time, is doing extraordinary miracles. Wait a minute. Is that what it says? No, it says God is doing extraordinary miracles. The hand of Paul. So this guy who's in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this guy who's serving him faithfully, it's in him that God is doing, or through him that God is doing these extraordinary miracles. Now, should that surprise us? I don't know. Not really. Because these miracles are being done by the Lord who created this world. He's the one who created the laws of physics and everything that governs this. So if the Lord wants to do something that defies those laws, he's the one who can do it. Second of all, I mean, these miracles are bringing attention to God and his gospel because Paul is preaching Christ. This is who he represents. So of course, God will want to do things, signs through him that bring attention to the truth, that draw people to consider, to think about the truth that that Paul is preaching that points to God. And finally, we often see this happen when the gospel first arrives in a place. We see these signs, these, these miracles, whether it be like in Acts chapter 2, where, you know, Peter stands up and preaches that first gospel sermon after uh, Jesus is, is, has died and, and, and goes back into heaven. He preaches in Acts 2, and those disciples are all given the, the what I'm not having right now, the ability with language. <laughs> I'm stumbling around here. They're given the ability to speak different languages so that others can hear the gospel. And we see that happen in various circumstances, situations. They go into a new area to preach the gospel and boom, there's this ability to do a miracle, to heal somebody, to exercise somebody from a demon. And people go, wait a minute, we've got to listen to this. This message, there's some power here. There is truth here. And so really, in one sense, I'd say, you know, we shouldn't be so surprised. It's God who's doing the miracles. It's to draw attention to his gospel. And and this has been a pattern in various different situations. God has used this to open people's minds to consider. 
because they, they realize this is a, a message of love, a God of compassion, because look, he wants to restore, he wants to rebuild people. We want a piece of that action. <laughs> That's what they're thinking. So they hear the gospel. But you know, it's been interesting that so little has been said of this in Paul's ministry so far. As Luke writes about this, he hasn't been writing about the miraculous all the time, although there were some miracles. We've been seeing this pattern of Paul going in and preaching, and you know he goes to the synagogue and he starts out with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and then you know usually it's not many Jews, but more Gentiles who listen, and then he ends up getting kicked out of the synagogue, no more teaching about the Christ through the Old Testament, and he starts a church. We haven't been hearing a lot about, about miracles. And yet, miracles did happen. And when Paul writes about these, it's, it's interesting. You know, we use the word extraordinary, extraordinary, unusual. Even Luke, as he writes about this, says, this is kind of weird wasn't the norm but they were taking things that Paul had touched and healing people and you read through that what it's actually saying it's, it's like saying uh, uh, sweatbands bandanas right and so it says people carried them away and you get this idea okay remember Paul the tent maker were they going to Paul taking, lifting off of his work table uh, rags that he had used that had maybe tied around his head that he'd sweat on and in their desperate superstition they're taking them to loved ones who are sick who need to be healed and somehow God is, well not somehow, God is working through this. God is meeting them in their desperate superstition doing something abnormal has God ever done that before have we ever seen that where God mercifully meets a person who you know they're not going about it the normal remember the woman who touched the hem of Jesus garment you know was that someone something Jesus did did he walk around going you know touch my robe or touch me and be healed no but this woman who was so desperate, who obviously God knows her heart too, knows the sincerity of her heart, her, her weaknesses and her wants, and, and she snuck up to Jesus in the crowd and somehow, you know, you get the idea of touching the hem of the garment. I don't know whether she was crawling through the crowd or what was going on, but she wanted to be healed. She was desperate and she did something that was not normal, and yet God in his mercy responded and she was healed immediately. And I get the, the idea that this is the same sort of thing that was going on. People who, while it sounds like Ephesus was kind of like a, a, a witchcrafty sort of place, when you hear about all the books they had, when you hear what, what's going on there, and so, of course, as these people think about God and about spirituality, they're going to be coming from a completely wrong perspective. 
they're going to be thinking about magic and spells and this sort of thing. And so they're going, okay, this guy's got power. Maybe I can grab something of his, what do they call them, the amulet? A good luck charm? A rabbit's foot? We'll take this, this <laughs> bandana of his or his apron from work and we'll go and we'll, we'll touch people and perhaps we can get them healed. And it says God responded in an extraordinary way. These people were healed. We have prayer quilts. Not really. We do have prayer quilts. But those prayer quilts aren't to heal anybody, are they? They remind us to pray for those people. If God wants to heal them, God can heal them. We pray. And they're to remind the people that we are praying for them. I just want to get that firm in our minds. We're not a superstitious church here. We don't believe in good luck charms. But we do. We do prayer quilts. But the, here God was working in, a, in an unusual way. But on the other hand, as we go on into the story, here's what happens when the miracle is the focus, the end goal. We have these guys who are attempting just to do miracles. Not to build the Lord's fame even. Not to share his gospel. Not to give God glory. All of these things they want for themselves. They're looking to do things so they can say, hey, look, we're healers. We're exorcists. Look what we do. We go around and, and they're using God to try and build their fame. I remember when I was in high school, weirdest thing happened, especially weird when we think of the context we live in right now. But when I was in high school in the 80s, this rock band came to school. Now you say, rock bands go to high schools normally for a dance, but these guys came and they played an assembly in the middle of school. So we got taken out of class, taken to the gym, and this rock band, they're up there playing music, the only, and they're playing like covers of all the popular songs of the day, but in between the songs, the leader of the band is sharing the gospel, calling people to come to the Lord. You think, well, that's weird. Not that they'd allow rock music in the middle of school, but in our day and age today, that anybody would talk about the gospel in the school during the day? It was the weirdest thing. But one of my friends, he said to me afterwards, he had gone and helped them move, remove their equipment. He was one of the volunteers who went and helped them clear out afterwards. He said, oh, I was talking to one of the guys in the band. I don't know why he told me this, because I was not necessarily living as a, an exemplary life as a Christian, but he says, one of the guys in the band says to him as they were talking, yeah, we got to do this Christian thing for now because like, it gets us in and we're allowed, to, you know, we're allowed to play in front of the student. But maybe one day if we really make it, we can drop this part of the act. Powerful. <laughs> Truthful. And so this is what was happening with these guys, these seven sons of Sceva. They took the name of Jesus 
and they were using it in vain for their own purposes. They didn't know Jesus, but thought that his name, that Paul's name, could be used like a magic spell. Think about this. They knew the historical Jesus. They knew that he was really a man. They knew he was known for miracles. They knew about Paul and the gospel he taught, his teaching, his theology. They knew about Jesus and Paul's approach and their abilities. And they thought, we can take and use that as a formula for success. But they didn't know Jesus Christ. They didn't care about his purposes. God's power is revealed in this next, these next few verses that it's more than magic. Well, we can learn from other people's mistakes because in verses 14 to 16, we read about these guys who would go in and they, would, they, they confronted, the seven sons confront one man and they say, I adjure you, evil spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ and Paul who preaches him to come out. And what's revealed? The demon knows as much as they do. They're on the same level. They know about Jesus. Demon says, I know about Jesus too. I know about Jesus. I'm aware of Paul. And we think that's no surprise either because if we go back to the book of James again, what does it say? It's chapter two where, where James is writing. He says, even the demons believe so a simple assent, a simple, oh yeah, there was a man named Jesus who did miracles. I know about him isn't enough. Because even the demons believe and they tremble. But what's the difference? What's the difference in their belief? Well, it's not a trust. It's not a desire to obey and to follow. You see, these guys, they had this gig and they thought Jesus could help them be successful. We see that in the world all the time. We see people who try and use spirituality or God or the gospel or Jesus. We see the guys crossing themselves as they go to the plate to, to bat. <laughs> Jesus can give me a hit. He can come on board and help me get what I want. Guys who score the basket, basketball, they're pointing to the sky. They do that in soccer as well. All these sports, these guys think, man, if I can, if I can hook into Jesus somehow, he's good if he can give me success at what I want to do. And here we see all these guys, the demon and the seven sons of Sceva, they have an awareness of who Jesus is. They know about Paul's teaching. They know about the, the, the formula they think is a winning formula. You think, how much does a demon know? Like, I mean, do they, they understand the gospel and how it works? They, they hear, they understand what Paul is teaching. Are they Reformed theology demons? Is that what they believe? 
but it makes no difference to them. There's not a commitment. There's maybe a conviction. Maybe they feel bad about being on the losing side. They know that. But there's no submission. There's no obedience to that truth. And so we understand that good information is not enough. Even thinking of the the film that they're going to show here tonight, the gospel, uh, American gospel. It talks about the direction that our North American continent has gone in terms of with the gospel, how it's been watered down, how it's been perverted. And we can come and we can watch that, and that's good. It's good to have good information, but it's not enough. It's not enough that we say, ooh, look what people have done to the gospel. Look how they've skewed it. Look how it's, it, it's, it's being misrepresented. Just to be able to say that, for us to understand and be able to say it, it's not enough. We need to know the Christ of the gospel. We need to be walking with him, to know him more deeply, to be professing him, to to be living out a relationship, a deepening, an ever-deepening relationship with him. Because if he's not involved, if he's not involved, it doesn't matter if you're using the word of God. I can get up here and preach, and if the spirit of God is not speaking through this truth to your heart, it makes no difference, does it? I mean, you think of how many messages you and I have listened to, have heard in a uh, I don't know, infertile way. We've, we've sort of sat there, the truth has been preached, and we've sort of gone, yeah, that's true. And we walk out, and nothing happens. Changes nothing. We, we just kind of let it go. The birds come down, and they pick up that seed, and they take it away. It doesn't strike deep into our heart because we didn't come with a dependence on the Spirit to speak to our hearts, to to convict us, but not just convict us, to transform us, to produce life in us, to help us with the application. And, I mean, that's for the listener's part. We've all been listeners. For my part, terms of the teaching the speaking the preaching what if i just come and and am going oh yeah i just i just want to get a message put together here that you know communicates truth and there's not a dependence on my part that god will use that truth and will speak to people's hearts and transform and change convict show the error the bold-faced air of our way and, and bring us to a place of humble submission, of appreciation for the love and mercy and compassion of God. You see, if the Spirit's not involved, there's nothing going on. It's just information. It may be good information, maybe true information, 
But we want more than that, don't we? We want God to be working, God to be changing us. It's interesting. Just this truth doesn't change anything. And the exorcists, they, they discover that. They, they use Jesus' name, most powerful name. They talk about Paul. God's ambassador in the world to the Gentile people at that time and nothing happens. Well, nothing good happens. You know, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, Paul talks to Timothy, who coincidentally, when Paul writes this letter to Timothy, Timothy is in Ephesus, the same place this story is taking place. And he says something interesting in that, in that verse, 2 Timothy 3 5, He talks about people who had the appearance of godliness but deny the power. The appearance of godliness. These people look good, but they're denying the power. And the interesting thing, the telling thing, the thing that so clearly teaches us what we, I believe, need to learn from the Lord this morning is that they're not talking about miracles. They're not talking about exorcism. Not talking about any of this sort of extraordinary stuff. In the previous four verses, to the point where Paul says to the people, there are people who have a form of godliness, but lack the power. Those verses all have to do with people not having the power to, are you ready? Leave sin behind. They love themselves too much and they only do what they need to do to look good before other people. But there's no true willingness to leave sin behind. And that's what real repentance is. And that speaks to me. Now I ask myself, how much of what I do, what would be considered living for the Lord? You might say, oh, that's Steve. Look, at he's living for the Lord. He's serving the Lord. He, he's living a holy life. How much of what I do is simply done for others to see without a true renunciation of myself, of what I want, in order to love the Lord first and over everything else how much of what we do is just done so we look good so we have this form of godlikeness but it's not the true resurrection power power over sin where we say lord help me leave that sin behind And this may be in areas of our lives nobody else knows, notices. I mean, the most important area of our life, our heart. Where we say, I'm going to, this is is entry-level attitude in terms of Christianity. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, if you want to follow me, he says in Matthew 16, 
If you just want to follow, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This renunciation of the things I want to do what God wants, to follow the Lord, to listen to his spirit who is always willing to prompt, to point, to push us along the right way. All he's asking for from us is not, oh, do this list of things. He said, just that attitude where you're willing to do anything that he wants. But most of the time, in a religious community such as this, we fall back to, well, they expect me to do this. And most people do this, so I'll do this too. And it becomes this form, and they're not bad things. I mean, showing up for church on a Sunday morning is not a bad thing. But it can be a hollow thing if it's just, well, they expect me to be there, so I guess I'll get up. That's what I said this morning. Not really. <laughs> they expect me to be standing here, in the, so I'll do it, I'll get it. That's what we can sometimes reduce the Christian life to. Well, I want the neighbors to think I'm a good Christian person, so I will do this. Or I won't do that. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That is Christianity in its most basic form. And even Paul says, he doesn't say, he, he says, imitate me. But he doesn't say, do the things that I do. He says, imitate me imitating Christ. So don't look at Paul's life and read through every verse and say, well, he did this, I'm going to try and do that. He did this. No, he had this attitude toward Christ of denying self, taking up his cross, and, and following. Imitate him. That's what he tells us. He challenges us to do. I mean, he's the guy who, I guess we could most say, man, if you're just going to do everything he does... You could do it. Because, I mean, we've got a lot of good information about good things he did. But he says, imitate me imitating Christ. The attitude I have, you, you do it. You do it in your context. You do it in your personal relationship. You build intimacy between him and you. Because that is the Christian life. It's not through other people. I know those of us who, who grew up in Christian homes, there's a lot of confusion there because we grew up doing what our parents are telling us to do and there has to be this time of maturity, this, where we're, there, there's this transformation. That, oh, I'm not just doing this because my parents did this. 
And I'd get in big trouble if I didn't do it too. No, I'm doing this because of my relationship with the Lord. Not because of anybody else. Not because they're looking at me and judging. And that's sometimes what can build up in a, in a Christian community, in a church community. This judgmentalness, this, well, they're not really there yet because look what they do or don't do. Rather than an encouragement for each of us to seek the Lord, to grow in an intimate relationship with Him. Him leading from the inside. So we got these two examples. We've got Paul and these extraordinary, unusual miracles that he's doing. We've got these seven sons of Sceva and their attempt to do something miraculous and it turns sour. Where is God's power shown in this passage? In the last few verses, 17 to 20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all And the name of the Lord was extolled or magnified. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts, the magic arts, brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value and found it was, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, over a million dollars. In today's value, they say between a million and five million. That's kind of a wide range, I know, but anything over a million, that's a lot of cash to me. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. Two things said there. Magnifying the word of the Lord. Jesus was magnified and the word of the Lord prevailed mightily. How? Well, first there was an understanding where power truly resided. It was God who had the power. But you know, it was interesting. They didn't, they didn't just say, oh, man, Paul did those, those, God did those miracles through Paul. We're going to sign on board to get some of those miracles. No. What happened? Obedience happened. We see this movement of people who abandoned magic. What's magic? Magic is the study or practice of tapping into some supernatural power in order to get what you desire, what you want. Listen to that again. Magic is the study or practice of tapping into some supernatural power in order to get a desired result, what you want. That's what the seven sons of Sceva were doing, right? And that can be what we sometimes do with Jesus. We try and tap into his power to get what we want. 
But that's not what these people did. That's not how they responded. They didn't go, ooh, seven sons of Sceva, that's bad. We'll go with Paul and his power, his miracle power. No, this is God's power in people's lives. The Ephesian people sacrificed their wealth. True repentance. They sacrificed what they wanted. And they did something extraordinary. Something unusual. They burned their books, their magic books. This is all the stuff that we've believed in, all the stuff that we put our hope in to get what we wanted. I mean, there's a change of heart there. It's not just we're shifting from, from this way of getting miraculous to another way. They're saying, you know, we're getting rid of this. We're stopping living by this idea with this idea of we want what we want and we're going to do anything we can to get it. There's a shift, a repentance, a turning from that way, from that attitude, and a turning to the Lord, to the gospel. And it had this effect of of turbocharging the gospel in that area. What? The miracles of Paul? No, the transformation in the lives of Ephesian people. People who, who were growing in an intimate deepening relationship with the Lord. We're willing to deny ourselves, deny ourselves, burn the books, and turn to God. Follow Him. Do what He would have us do. And this brought clarity to the truth in that area. Do we have things in our life that feed into superstition? You know, we, we have such a secular society. I, I would doubt that you have, you know, the whole rabbit's foot and, and stuff like that, that you say, oh, I believe in this for good luck. But it's possible. Even in this society that would claim to be secular, there are people who, who have superstitions where they believe in something that it will get them what they want. Maybe you have something like that. You need to get rid of. But I know we all struggle with this attitude, this very natural attitude in terms of our relationship with the Lord. That it slide from being, Lord, I submit to you and I want to serve and glorify you to, Lord, you come along and you help me get what I want so I can be glorified. And that's a problem. A problem, a sin that we need to repent of. And if we are true disciples, we will be ridding ourselves in the process of ridding our life once and for all of this. That's repentance, saying, no, I'm going to put this behind me. I want to have the attitude that Christ calls me to because he is Lord of this world. He's my creator. He's my redeemer. I want to follow What is it the Lord is convicting you of?
may be a gross sin, may not be a gross sin. It might be what we consider something more trivial, more subtle, more acceptable in terms of our own little world here. But it has to do with our heart, our willingness to say, okay, Lord, if you brought this to light, if you have shone your light on this in my, my life and you've said, that's something that needs to go, that's something that is an obstacle in my relationship with you, are we committed to saying, yeah, I'll get rid of that. I'll throw it in the fire. It will be burned up. Even if it's just an attitude. Because I want to know the Lord better. What is it the Lord is asking you and I to dispose of in order to really know him Lord help us some very convicting teaching here as we see the wonder of these people new to you who are so willing to to repent of to turn away from and to turn to you I pray that you'd help us to have a renewed sense of the value the value of this relationship that we have with you We're a people who are easily distracted and things that we've had for some time lose their their shine. And that can even happen in terms of our relationship, the salvation relationship we have with you. But we see that this is the point and the purpose of all that you do to build that relationship with us to show your glory in the world. And that your glory is best shown not through the miracles. They can grab attention and they did and they do. But the thing that you really use to show your glory in the world is transformed lives. Lord, help us to be all about that, in that process of being transformed in relationship with you, listening to your voice, being convicted of the attitudes that we have that are are departing from this denying of ourselves and putting full trust in you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross, for his death which paid for our sin. Thank you for the faith that you planted in our hearts. That understanding that this is truth. Pray that you'd help us, Lord, to live according to that truth. so that we can know you better, honor you more in our hearts and in this world. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom there is power to be transformed and changed. 
Change us, Lord, we ask. Through your presence in us, your spirit. Amen.